This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Normally at this time, Don Robertson joins me to talk a little bit of sports. Well, Don is off. I think he's playing golf today. I think he's in a charity golf tournament. And so had to bring in the top-notch A-team pinch-hitting person. <laughs> uh, Terry Pekoski, who writes about the Hamilton Bulldogs and other sports for the Hamilton Spectator, is uh, is filling the seat today. Thanks for coming in. No problem. Uh, and Terry Pekoski, by the way, I'm, I'm actually relieved you are here. Uh, because Terry was covering the Canadian Open this week at Glen Abbey, and Terry came <laughs> inches. I'm not being funny. I'm not. I'm not making this no, up. I'm laughing now. But inches from actually having a golf ball rocket right into her brain. Tell the story. What happened to you when uh, at Glen Abbey? Well, I was there covering mostly Mackenzie Hughes, who's from Dundas, and it was. It was either Thursday or Friday. I'm I'm so traumatized, I can't remember. I thought, you know what, I'm going to go out a bit early, walk down the first hole, you know, wait down by the green, make it, you know, most of the way down the, down the fairway. So I do. I'm maybe, you know, 40, 50 feet past the out-of-bounds rope. Um, so way out-of-bounds. So I'm way out-of-bounds, not really paying attention to anything. Um and he's he's still there's a couple groups that still have to play through before he even gets there. So I'm really I mean I'm checking my phone I'm t- you know writing down some notes, and there's this man who's sitting in a, a lawn chair over by the ropes. He's quite a ways away from me, and he turns around and he sees my press pass, and he wants to know what newspaper I work for. So I take literally about two steps towards him, and then I just hear the sound of a ball rocketing off the path beside me, the asphalt path. But it was it was behind me, so I only hear the sound. I don't really see it, so I know it's gone somewhere. Um, it turned out it was a, a Keegan Bradley tee shot that went about 50 feet off the course and missed my head by the same two feet that I had sort of stepped forward to so talk to this you man. had you not moved? Had I not moved, had he not asked me a question at that very moment, it would have hit me right in the head. You would have been doing the rest of your coverage with like a band, a white thing wrapped around your head it covering. Was, it, you know what? And I, I was unfazed. And I think that that freaked people out because I didn't really see it. But everyone around me, and there were, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 people, everyone else saw what happened. And I turned around and they were just looking at me with these expressions of absolute horror. So it, you know, it does happen. And that's the thing about this that is really surprising to a lot of people because what is always amazing to me is when these pro golfers, and if you ever go to the Canadian Open or somewhere else, we expect that they are superhuman. And they really are. I mean, they're, you were just covering The oh, way yeah. they play yeah. is remarkable, but they are still human. And occasionally... They miss it. And yet people line the fairways and like stick their head in, especially near the tee boxes. And I'm like... And no one's looking. No one's paying attention. If they miss hit it, they will fire it at 400 miles an hour into your eye (laughs) socket. But no one thinks it. So this spring when I was down in Augusta at the Masters, also covering McKenzie, I can't remember who the golfer was, but he hit one as badly as I've ever seen a PGA Tour pro hit one. Went right off line about four feet off the ground. Yeah. And blasted someone in the head about 200 feet Ooh. away, just on a on a rope, just ping, and the guy's head, ex- like the part where it hit, exploded like a baked potato. Oh, my God. And just, it swelled up and blood was pouring everywhere. And the funny part was, like, it takes 
a few seconds for the person to, well, more than a few seconds, to gather themselves because their head has almost exploded. Why don't you wouldn't even know what happened? Oh, this person apparently did because all they were concerned about <laughs> was getting the ball and getting it autographed by the guy who drained him. That's devotion. That is a true fan That right there. That is That is more than... I think is beyond the call of duty. Yeah. I mean, honestly, a guy plonks me in the head from that distance. I'm asking him for a new set of clubs or something. I mean, these are PGA yeah. Tour pros, right? Yeah. Like, show me some love. You're just asking for the ball? Yeah, no. And maybe if the ball was signed by, maybe it was Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson or someone, but this is Joe Schmarcola. Like, it's, <laughs> it's a nobody. It's like, what? I don't even care at that point. I just was glad for the poor, and it's a true story. I'm just glad for the guy's sake that it wasn't embedded into oh his my, skull. Ooh. Well, thank God. No, it's yeah, so I'm glad that you are. Uh, thank you. You are not concussed, not I fractured, that. not. You know, you would look silly coming into work with a golf ball permanently etched into yeah, your side of your head. I wouldn't look good. It would really ruin your hair. <laughs> <laughs> How do you do your hair when there's a golf ball stuck in your head? Um, th- this was an interesting week, though. First of all, there were 17. Canadians in this to start. Yeah. Now, not all of them are pros. Some of them qualified from the qualifiers or were amateurs or invites, but 17 Canadians are two make the cut, mm-hmm. Graham Dillette and Mackenzie Hughes. Both are in contention going into Saturday. They're four strokes off going into Saturday's yeah, I think third they were round. Even, they might have even been tied, I think. And then one bad round for each of them. They both had a disappointing round on yeah. Saturday and they're out. What do you, you were there covering it. How much pressure is there on the Canadian guys to win this thing? Do you think there was more pressure on them to win than on anyone else to win? Oh, yeah. You think so? Yeah. I mean, and and you kind of, you get it from everywhere. You, you, the players put more pressure on themselves because. Yeah, that's what I I know they do. And so that's why I'm thinking like, do you think it's hard for a Canadian guy they haven't won since 1954, but is that simply because only one guy can win every year, and so the chances of a Canadian winning are small, even if they play well, or is it because they get there and everyone's wearing red and white and everyone's wanting them to win, and so the pressure just crushes them down? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really do think it's a combination of things. You see it, you you have groups following them, which I'm sure, unless they're playing with Tiger Woods or, you know, Dustin Johnson or someone else like that on tour... The groups aren't following them mm. around the course. Um, you know, Mackenzie told me that was unusual. Uh, you are looking up in the crowd and you maybe see 20 or 30 people that you know. That's weird. That doesn't mm. happen when you're at other places on the tour. People are screaming every time you make a good shot. But the thing I really noticed this time is that people also groan mm. when you miss one. Yep. And... And that's got to, so you, you know, know. you're letting them down. Every that's got to hit you a well, little. 2003, I guess it was. Was it 2003 or 2006 that Mike Weir finished second at the Canadian Open behind Vijay Singh? Mm-hmm. And I just remember that was in Hamilton. And it was right after Weir had won the Masters. And I remember the gallery. Basically, everybody on the whole course was following Mike Weir that day. Yeah. You could have been any other golfer and it would have been like me and you going out and playing on the municipal course. Yeah. Like, and then there's 30,000 people lining every hole that Mike Same Weir was Same thing with David playing. Hearn a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah, when he went into the when last round was with leading, the lead. yeah. <clears throat> but I just, I look at these guys and I think, I, I just wonder if a Canadian will 
win it again because of that pressure that goes on them. That, And it's not so much that they're not used to playing with pressure. It's that you're doing okay and then one little thing goes badly and you start to feel that and then it, it leads it, it to esca- things. Yeah, it, it escalates. It, it escalates. It compounds. It's, yeah, it, it just kind of gets worse and worse. It, it was interesting too. I actually, after... After Saturday's round, the, in which Mackenzie kind of stumbled a little, I talked to his um, his partner, Tag Ridings, who's from he's from Oklahoma, but he trains somewhere outside Dallas. And I asked him, you know, is this, you know, do you experience this when you play in a tournament or an event at at home? Mm-hmm. You know, what's it like? Is it is it different? And he. He was like, absolutely. Yeah, it oh, is, so they get it, it at home. It is so different. I I don't like playing at home. There's so many other things that you don't have to worry about anywhere else on the tour. You've got people that you know asking you for tickets. You might get 65 people mm-hmm. who say, can you get me a pass? Can you get me behind the ropes? You are feeling pressure to have dinner with your family. Um there's just a whole other, you know, group of obligations too that that you don't normally have. So your routine is weird. But you have to do those things because it's not just about winning the game, this tur- this tournament. Yeah. It's about building your brand. It's about ha- satisfying your sponsors. Well, about getting yeah, new sponsors. Sponsors is another thing, right? Um, you know, you're meeting with people when you're not playing or practicing. All of your time is taken up, and mm. that's just it, it. It's different from your daily routine and. The thing that Mackenzie told me that really stuck with me was, you know, so many things have to go right. He, he's won one event now, and yep. he said so many things had to go right for that to happen. Um, that it, it's just, it's hard to imagine with all of this other stuff on, going on. I mean, it, just so many things would have to line up to win here. Well, how many, like about 75 players played on the weekend, made the cut? Yep. Give or take, 75. And two of them were Canadian. So yep. even leaving aside the pressure, the, the by sheer number, by percentages, the chances of a Canadian being one of the 75 that comes out with the best score is a long shot at best. And, and that's not unusual, I would say, for the no. last 10 years or so. Here's something that's interesting that I didn't realize about 1954, which is the last year that a Canadian won. There were maybe 20 Canadians in the top 40 that year. Really? And the tournament was in British Columbia. So a lot of PGA Tour guys didn't go because it was so far away. And the other thing is it wasn't an official PGA Tour stop that year. There was actually a PGA Tour event happening, I want to say, in Cleveland that same weekend. So, you know, very different circumstances the last time a Canadian won as well. The one thing that could turn it around, and I, I, I... as much as there is pressure on the Canadian players, mm-hmm. if there was a player, and David Hearn tasted this again when he went into Sunday with the lead, but then, as I recall, that was two years ago, he stumbled right away. Like the lead was gone within like it was three early. holes or yeah. something. If you could get to the back nine, and Mike Weir again was this in 2003, and he just got caught by Vijay Singh, but if you could get to the back nine with a lead and you were a Canadian and playing well, mm-hmm. You know what? There would be pressure and there would be nerves, but I think also there would be such a, a, a ground. So you would feel so like almost carried along yeah. by the yeah. crowd if you were feeling good about your game. Yeah. And especially if you were in that position where you were, that was when you were starting to roll. You get two or three birdies and now you're feeling it. 
as opposed to momentum just, is such a huge thing instead in of just sport. hanging on for dear life if yeah. you got hot and the crowd got behind you i could see that being a huge advantage but who knows when that's going to happen <laughs> who knows when that's going to happen and, and you know I, I i can tell you that it's um i i honestly i'd love to see mckenzie win it i'd love to see one of the other guys win it i just it the chances of it is so small. I just, it, it, you're right. Everything has to go right. For, Everything for has days, to go right. For four, for four days. days. And, and you look even at this week with the weather. I mean, it poured rain on the Thursday. There are some guys who didn't finish their round. Um, it was blistering hot on Sunday. It was super windy on on Saturday, you so know, depending when you got on the course, dep- the conditions it, it was were changing. totally different. And, you know, so you're, you're also dealing with that stuff, too. That's completely out of your control, even if you can manage the nerves. Well, I mean, as I say, Mackenzie Hughes, he made the cut this year. Last time he played, I think it was either the last time he played or the first time he played 2012 and he played 2013. He was on about, I don't know, hole number 14. Mm hmm on his second round and was going to make the cut. And then all of a sudden it began to pour at Hamilton, just come down in buckets and they didn't call it off right away. And so he had to take two or three shots. And I remember when one of his shots, because I was following around, ended up in a puddle. And they called over a marshal, but the thing hadn't been called yet. So so, there's nothing you could do. And and that cost him that. And then he came back on the course. And it was now completely different from what you've been playing. Anyway, it's it, you're right. A lot has to go right. But just as I say, just um, glad that you're here and not slurring your words. Yeah. <laughs> you're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. One of my favorite stories from the world of sports in a long, 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 long time happened today. The Chicago Cubs, who won the World Series last year, ending a 108 year drought. That's a long time. That's The Leafs are not even halfway there yet. That tells you how long it is. 108 year drought, they win. But you remember it was 14 years ago, 13 years ago last fall, that Steve Bartman was that guy sitting by the railing when the Cubs were playing the Florida Marlins in game six of the National League Championship and there was a foul ball and Bartman reached for it, looking up at the sky, didn't realize that he was sort of leaning over the railing. Moishe Salou, the outfielder, thought he should have got the ball. On and on and on. And Steve Bartman became a pariah in Chicago. He was a hated guy. His name became a swear word, basically, and he's gone into seclusion. Well, they won, and the Chicago Cubs today, in a, I thought, Terry, a beautiful, beautiful gesture, the president of the Cubs went to his house. I don't know how they know where he is, I guess. (laughs) And took him his own personalized, legitimate, diamond-encrusted Chicago Cubs World Series ring. That, to me, is kind of cool. I love it. I love it. That's a cool story. I saw that story, and it really did just sort of warm my cold, cold heart. Warm the cockles of your heart, yes. Mm -hmm. And and these rings are are no joke. Like, these things are the size of, well, you drive a Fiat, and these are about the size (laughs) of your car. These things are huge. You're right. I mean, uh, yeah, it would weigh about five pounds, I'm sure. You would need a thing to rest your hand on, a little (laughs) roller. But uh, look, I I just think that there's a whole bunch to this story. First of all, whoever it was, whether it was Tom Ricketts, who's the guy who's the head of the Cubs, or whether it's someone in the office, whoever thought when they were going over the list of who gets a ring, whoever came forward with the suggestion, Steve Bartman should get a raise. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. I mean, 
this literally ruined this guy's life. Yeah. This, no, it really and it, did. It's kind of funny because it has, it's been a while since I watched the tape, right? But obviously today the story comes out, you pull it up on YouTube, you start looking at that clip all over again. And it really sinks in how he he had no idea. And he anybody, wasn't the only one. Anybody sitting at any stadium, if they're looking up at the sky and the ball is coming towards you. You reach up to grab it, right? And then that he wasn't leaning over It could have been the railing. any one of us. He was reaching up to the sky and it just sort of bounced off his hand. Yep. It could have been any one of us. And yet yeah. he was the guy. Yeah. And if you watch the movie, there was a 30 for 30. ESPN did a, they do a series. I've talked about them before. It's 30 for 30 and it's called Catching Hell. And it's about him and it's about um, Boston Red Sox uh, 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 through his legs in the World Series. Um, oh, drawn a blank. About the two of them and how one play each ruined their yeah. life, basically. And, I mean, he was getting, Steve Barton was getting death threats and he was getting, and the weird part about this is he, this was game six, first of all. Yeah. And the Cubs are still up by three. And the next batter, Alex Gonzalez, who used to be the Jays shortstop, has a double play ball that's perfectly hit to him, and he clanks it off his glove, and it goes yeah. downhill. Bartman was not it wasn't the his cause. Fault. It wasn't his fault, and yet this ruined his life. But again, the Cubs are not a team I don't think that needs good PR. Wrigley Field is sold out all the time. It's the place everybody wants to go. Yeah. But whoever thought of this. As oh, say, it, because it's international news, right? This type of story, they give out their rings. It makes the local paper, the papers in Chicago. Yeah, every team gets but, a ring. you know, it's not making newspapers in Toronto. No. When they give team, out the rings. Every team who wins a championship in any sport gets rings. It's not news. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, whoever came up with this is a PR genius. It does say, though, the other, the other side of the story, though, is to realize how seriously sometimes, though, we do... Oh yeah. Take sports. That this that that and I'm not just pointing the finger at people in Chicago because this has happened all over the place. But that yeah. a moment can destroy someone. And you're right, this destroyed his life. Well, and you can tell even in his you know, if a couple hours Bill after Bill Buckner, by the way, was oh, the Chicago the Red, or the, the Boston the, first baseman. The Red Sox. Yes. Um even in the statement he he put out a couple hours after, you know, the this was tweeted or mm-hmm. The news came out, um, made it really clear that he still has no desire to, you know, to really go public at all. You know, he doesn't want to talk to media. He doesn't want, he, he just wants to be left alone yeah. still. Because I was really hoping, and, and it won't happen by the sounds of it, I was really hoping, okay, this is the first thing. And then this is a nice, ge- this is a beautiful gesture by the Cubs. And, and again, full measure to them. But the one thing this doesn't do is allow him to hear really sort of from the fans yeah. that they have forgiven. And I wanted him, I really desperately wanted him to agree to throw out a first pitch or, yeah. you know, at Chicago where they do the seventh inning stretch and sing, take me out to the ball game. I don't know if he's a singer, but where he could appear as Steve Bartman in a public venue with Chicago Cubs fans so they could lose their minds cheering for him and it would be this. And just feel safe. Well, yeah, but and it would be, the yeah. fans saying it's okay. It's okay. You know, it's all now. Whether he would accept their forgiveness, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't sound like that, at least yet, is going to happen. I, I hope before the day comes that he passes away, and he's still a young man. He's only in his thirties. Yeah. I really hope that that can happen. Uh, when, again, in the nineteen, what was it, nineteen eighty six, 
World Series when Bill Buckner let the ball go between Mookie Wilson's ball go between his legs and the Cub and the Red Sox lost before they broke their streak. Bill Buckner was vilified in yeah. a in a unbelievable way, and it was only about six years or five years ago that he returned to Fenway to throw out a first pitch. And after they won the World Series, after their curse was over, and was allowed to be the guy again, it was all sort of look, we forgive you, and you forgive us, and. Why do you think that happens? Why why do people blame a single play when all of us know deep down it's it, it's a series of plays. It's a whole collection of plays that win or lose championships. What about why, the tie why cats? do we do that? The tie cats in the Grey Cup with the block from behind that caused yeah. the flag on the on the kick return. Exactly. Got got blamed on them not winning the Grey Cup or the ref, the official who threw it, one or the other. But but they blew it long before that. There were all kinds of other opportunities. Exactly. It's, it's not one play. And, you know, the one with Bill Buckner, a little bit different <laughs> because it was a routine yeah. Yeah. ground ball that he would have made a play on 999 times out of 1,000. There was nothing difficult about it, and it just was one of those weird things that it was that one moment that it did happen. Mm-hmm. But I look, I, again, I look at this and I think, I, I, I really think that as much as this is a great story, there is still a piece of this story that is left unfinished until he, and look, it's his choice, but I, until he comes out in a public venue as, as and not just as a fan, like he, for all we know, he may have a big bushy beard now and he may have an afro and may wear a toque. <laughs> I mean, he could look like a, yeah. a hipster now and you would never recognize him. He's got contacts and. He needs to come out as Steve Bartman. He may have been to a thousand Cubs games since then, for all we know. Yeah. And no one recognized him. But you know what? It's curious. I mean, are, are Cubs fans over it? And, and you know, how... Now that they've won. Now that they've won, but I they think... They had to win. If they hadn't won yet... He would still be a villain. Mm, if they hadn't won yet, he'd still be a villain. Yeah. The fact that they've won... That changes things, That changes I think. everything. That changes everything. It's Which not, is unfortunate, because it, it shouldn't, right? I mean, he had... As little to do of with, he did. you know, with I, you know, them losing as he did with them winning. Of course, so, you know, I, I kind of look at this like, and this is probably a really horrible example, but if you were dating someone at one point and you broke up, and then years later you get married and you're happy, mm-hmm. and you run into that person, even if you had a bad breakup, you're probably able to say hello and. Be, be civil, civil, you know, yeah. As opposed to years before when you hated each other and you couldn't stand and you, I again, I know it's a bad example, but I kind of look at it that way. Okay, something good has happened now. So yeah. we can look at the past and we, oh, you know, who cares what happened back then? Except I'm sure he cares because for 13 years, he's been having to live basically as a, see, I don't even know. Would he, I'm assuming he still went to work as Steve Bartman. So some people in Chicago must have known where he was and who he was. And yeah, s- I, I, unless he went into the witness protection program and yeah. he's, you know, now got a different name and a different look and had cosmetic surgery. Maybe that's why he doesn't want to do it. He paid all that money for cosmetic surgery. <laughs> no one would re- recognize him anyway. No, that's right. No, yeah. you're not Steve Bartman. <laughs> anyway, go, go read the story when you get a chance because it is really one of the, um, I hate to use this phrase, but a heartwarming. It really is stories of the year that that the, that the Cubs thought to do this and, and it makes me I'd love to know I, I don't know if the Red Sox did anything other than having Bill Buckner back if they gave him a ring or did anything because and I don't know maybe that's a different thing because he was on a team that didn't win it would be weirder yeah. to give it to a player but something something 
somehow this story is almost finished now, but just not quite. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Terry Pekoski in studio talking sports for the first hour, Bulldogs writer and sports writer for The Spectator. And also, I will say, a regular purveyor of Ticat football action. She and her husband, Tom, more than regularly go down to Tim Hortons Field, buy tickets, don't get freebies, buy tickets. Let me turn your microphone on. Buy tickets, buy the beverages and whatever else. Hot dogs. And by the end of a day, if you've... So what would you, on a typical game, what would you, between the two of you, how much would you drop for tickets and food and beer and everything else? I'd say easily 150 bucks. Okay, 150 bucks. And these are the cheap seats. These are, you know, the upper level. These are the cheap seats. So 150 bucks for a day uh, at the park. Based on... We don't know what's going to happen Friday, but based on what you saw and based on what you've been seeing, how inclined are you to keep paying 150 bucks to go and see them five or six more times this season? Not at all. <laughs> not very. Not very. I shouldn't say not at all. Not very. Um, we, you know, we've been to one game this year. They were leading and then they lost. It was not exciting. The best, you know, the best part for us. That was last just... bit is how all the games have ended. By <laughs> That's the way, how, yeah, I don't need to be specific <laughs> because they've all ended that way. Uh, and I mean, for me, the the most interesting thing about that day was, you know, talking to our friends that we met there. It was not, you know, it, it just wasn't See, a great the- experience. It didn't feel like it it does when they. When they win or when they're at least, you know, fighting. But back in 2004, when Bob Young bought the team, one of the first things that he said is, we are going to create an ambiance, an environment that it inoculates the team and the fans against losing. So even if we lose, Mm -hmm. you're still going to have a great time at the park. You are still going to feel like you're going to walk away from the ballpark and you're going to feel, I got my money's worth, even if they lose. Well, it, Do you feel that way? Full disclosure, we didn't even spend the 60 bucks that we would normally spend on tickets. We got got tickets in the end zone, the bar area, then it was like 30 bucks or something like that. And I still was kind of like, uh, uh. See, I don't think, as much as it's an interesting, as much as it's a, a creative idea to say, we are going to create something that is immune to wins and losses. Mm-hmm. You can maybe have that when a stadium is brand new, but we're now into our, what, fourth year? Is this the fourth season or the third season? Anyway, whatever it is, 2015, so 14, 14 15, uh, probably, the, probably the third full season. Third full season, but maybe. third and a half because yeah. they went in at Labor yeah. Day. So, so the stadium is not brand new anymore, so you don't have that. Yeah. And you can have a band play at halftime as they did for one of the games, whatever. I just, I think there comes a point when, you do need to show something on the field. And they're, they seem to be, it's still early in the season, even though it's, you know, if you listen to the fifth quarter with Rick Zamperin here, people were almost apoplectic. Yeah. Um, Saturday night, <laughs> when, when you open the radio lines at 1230 on a Sunday morning after people have had all day to consume some beverages and watch their team get pummeled yeah. by a near record score, it makes for an interesting fifth quarter, I, I will tell you. I wish I'd been you. listening. Uh, you can still go look, listen to it online. It's available online. I will. That's what I'm doing later tonight. But I just think there comes a point when you you do have to 
win games. It's not enough to just say, we've got the stadium, we've got the ambiance, we've got this and that. You have to win games. And they seem to be heading in the wrong direction from that. And I look at it and I go, if this, not 60 to 1, they're not going to lose every game 60 to 1. No. But if they're still losing, boy, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to get people into that stadium. Well, and you know what makes it worse is that we were so spoiled at the beginning how many games in a row did they win at that stadium? Yeah, you could. They couldn't lose at Tim Hortons Field, and now they can't. They can't win. Now they can't win. And again, you, if you are a season ticket holder, or you someone who goes and buys seats regularly, and you've seen now, let's say you've gone to six games and they've lost all six games, it becomes pretty. Disin, disincline, disin, it's a disinclination. Well, because even even when they win. One. I mean, you know, then they're six and one. I mean, it's it's not like they're one back. One and six, yeah. No. Or it's, one it's, and six, sorry. One and five, one it's, and six, yeah. It's not like they're back in it. I mean. Except it's the East, so they kind of are. Well, yeah, that's true. That's uh, true. What the, what, I mean, honestly, this that's weekend. That's kind of depressing. They not only have to win this weekend, but I think the Ticats have to be hoping that Winnipeg does not beat Ottawa. And here's where you start getting, even though it's early in the year, it starts getting into some weird math because if Ottawa wins and Hamilton loses, Ottawa's up by five points, which is they play twice against Ottawa in the next few weeks. You can make up that gap. If Winnipeg wins, the crossover is in effect. Yeah. And they're up by eight points on Hamilton. Now it's getting more difficult. And they play Winnipeg the week after. And if Winnipeg wins that, Mm -hmm. they're up by 10 points. And now you're looking at this going, ooh. This is a problem. Yeah. But I'm just looking at this going, I, I, I'm going to be interested to see. The Ticats have announced, if I'm correct, I believe they have said that every game so far at Tim Hortons Field has been a sellout. I think they've, I think they've announced a sellout for every single game that's been played at that stadium. I can't, I can't believe that will continue if the team is playing, again, not 60 to 1, but no, I, I, yeah, poorly. But not if they lose again. I just, I'll be this honest, week, what I, I can't wait, I mean, if they lose, I will be tuned in to the fifth quarter for sure, because I got to <laughs> tell you, there is nothing more entertaining <laughs> than liquored up angry Ticat fans when their team has gone down the tubes. It is, it is fun to listen when the team is doing well, but the fans, it's weird. The fans don't get as agitated is obviously the wrong word, as wired up when they win. There's way more energy when they lose on the fifth quarter and the call-in shows than when they well, win. Well, you know, I have this general rule now that when when they lose, I, I just don't go anywhere near my phone or near Twitter. Because? Because I've usually had a couple beers and... <laughs> oh, so it's a self-preservation thing. I just, I can't be trusted. Keep from I getting can't fired. Be trusted. Yeah. Probably a wise idea. Yeah. Uh Got an email here, by the way, saying that our interviews that uh, that my interview I did last week with about the concussions uh, made the tie cat scared and they didn't want to hit anybody. That well, may be the way the to answer. go, Scott. Uh, yeah, I'm the cause of it. That that talking about concussions actually made them disinclined to hit anyone. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. Forum research poll came out today. It was released today. Let me just read you the first couple sentences of this. Ontarians have had it with government policies and politicians who waste public infrastructure dollars, according to a new poll by Forum Research. The poll shows a whopping 90% of Ontarians believe elected officials should be doing more to make sure taxpayers are getting good 
value. Hands up if you are one of those people. If you're in your car, go ahead and honk your horn if you're one of those people. If you believe that you think politicians should be doing a better job at all levels of making sure that your tax dollars, that you don't have a choice to pay, are being used wisely. Well, my next guest is Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly, who came into office a couple of years ago on a platform of cutting costs, of being good with money, on being using it wisely. And over the time she's been in, I know she has found herself on both sides of the popularity fence because of her claims and arguments for frugality. Uh, Donna Skelly, thanks for doing this today. You know, this poll couldn't have come at a better time. Why is that? I would be honking my horn if <laughs> we're in a car right now. It's funny because actually I've only been in for about a year. Um, it's just been over a year. And every time uh, my staff and I sit down to uh, embark on a new project, we are incredibly stunned at the cost of doing business with, as a government. It's, it's just, in my opinion, absolutely unacceptable. I've raised this before on your program, but I'll raise it again. Let's take an example of a splash pad. And I've asked people, how much do you think a splash pad, just a basic pad with concrete at a park that already has hydro, at a park that already has access to water, a few pipes out of the ground, paint them five different colors. What is your estimate of how much something like that would be to install? And what do most people give as their answer? At the most, they say under 100000 it's between five and six hundred thousand. And why? I that. But why? That's exactly why. I asked staff to come back because I was looking at it. They are very, very popular and much in demand. And so one of the um, neighborhood associations in my ward asked for one. We looked around and uh, we, we examined whether or not it fit the profile in, in order to deem it necessary, and it was deemed an appropriate site. And we looked at, at the cost. And so... When we, they came back and told us it would be over 500000 uh, you've got to be joking. So we contacted a, a uh, builder of splash pads that doesn't work within the municipal sector or any government sector, but provides and builds splash pads for the private sector, parks, private parks, uh, t- tourist destinations, hotels. And they said the cost, the actual physical structure is about $80,000. So how does it jump then to between five dollars and $600,000? This week, we are actually going to be um, reaching out to every municipality. I know that there was a councillor in Ottawa that raised the same thing. And uh, I just uh, a Google search earlier today, and some of the costs in, um, I think it was Sudbury, came back around between two and 300000 So even if 300000 is the maximum price, how do we come in at 600000 double that figure, and 300 to me is still excessive. So I will be getting back to you on that. But I want to know, why is it that... We just roll over and, and say, fine, if that's the price. It's unacceptable. And well, we have over 60 splash pads in the city of Hamilton. And Donna, this comes on the heels, and everybody knows this story, because what was it, about a month ago or three weeks ago maybe, we heard this story from Toronto of this uh, the, a neighborhood where they had a hill and they wanted a set of stairs put in, and the city said, no, we can't do it because it's going to be $150,000 to build these stairs. So some neighborhood guy, just a nice local guy, for $500 built them himself. Now, they didn't meet up with all the code and everything else, but still, it was $500 to buy the wood and put it together as opposed to $150,000. And if nothing else, that in giant capital letters screamed out how much 
public things seem to be overwritten, how much it, more it costs inexplicably to do work th- public sector but things than to get private sector stuff done. That's an isolated example. I'm telling you, it happens consistently in the city of Hamilton, and it's really frustrating. We, uh, when I was elected, um, prior to my election, the city was given a number of, um, oppor- a number of opportunities to spend well, partly our money, and we were going to be receiving money through the Canada 150 Fund, and we had to match the dollars. And so one of the projects that City Council agreed to, to um, pursue was a, a, new par- a new restroom at Turner Park. Well, we're talking about a toilet. Okay, in, in, in truth, it's probably six toilets, maybe five toilets, one for a unisex washroom, one for uh, two for women, two for men, a couple of urinals, some bulletproof uh, sinks so they can't pull them off the walls. Everything's graffiti-proof, vandal-proof. The cost came in at half a million, and I was, are you kidding me? Uh, fine. And then, it, then they came back last week and said, actually, it's 610000 to build a washroom at Turner Park. Why? How is that possible? You can, now, remember, the water is there. The hydro is there. We own the land. You can build a high-end home on a piece of property you own for $600,000. I don't buy it. We pushed, um, I put a motion forward because staff said, look, if we want to meet the deadline to get the funding from the, the 150 grant, we actually have to, we need a motion to push this through. So we're going to go with a company that is already building like uh, washroom facilities in the city. So we use the same plan. I thought, great, we'll save dollars, right? It's the same contractor. We're using the same plan. No, they came back with $100,000 more. I mean, this is unacceptable. So this will all be raised. We're in a bit of a summer break, but I'm trying to get answers from staff, and it'll certainly become an issue. But it would seem to me, and maybe I'm just naive, but it would seem to me that if 90%, according to this poll, if 90% of Ontarians believe this is an issue and are frustrated by this, that this would be a popular thing for politicians, not just you, not just at the municipal level, municipal, provincial, this would be a very popular thing for politicians to get really coming down hard on and dealing with why does it persist? Why does it never get resolved? Because this is not new, Donna, that these things are happening. This has been going on forever. Absolutely. Why isn't it? I don't know. I want to find out. I want to talk to the city manager and say, look, I've been here a year and a half. And every time we go down this path, you know, you see more waste. You're, you're, you, you uncover this ridiculous cost of a project. And it's, it's, as I said, it's not an isolated incident, and it certainly wasn't an isolated incident in Toronto. Why does it consistently happen? Are we not, as elected officials, uh, being more re- responsible enough? Are we not pushing back and, and challenging staff when they come back with these, these cost estimates of $500,000? I know when I was first elected, uh, one of the things that I, I realized was this pattern of every time we embarked on on a study, it was $200,000. Every single study was $200,000. Whoa, why is it costing that? And I raised it a few times. Finally, one day, they said, oh, well, actually, um, no, we can do it for 92000 Really? Well, how, how did that happen? And it was simply raising it as an issue. I think we have to do a better job of really challenging and asking for a breakdown. How much and where is that money going? You say it's 500000 now 600000 for a washroom. How much was that sink? How much was it in, to install the sink? How much to lay the concrete pad? It's like the Pentagon. It, it's, it's, I understand that they want to make it so that it is, um, 
as I said, vandal proof, but Vancouver and now Montreal, and there are other, I think Quebec City is also doing this. They're putting in washrooms, for example, public washrooms that are self-cleaning, and uh, it's a French company that builds them, and they do it for free uh, in lieu of advertising, the rights to advertise on these washrooms. So maybe there's another option that we should be looking at for public facilities. Some people say there were issues with those washrooms in terms of the, um, some of them were breaking down, et cetera. But the bottom line is we can't continue to be building $600,000 public washrooms. Well, uh, imagine how many people would be doing home renovations if doing, now I understand you're going to have five or six toilets in this, but even so, if, if fixing your bathroom at home cost you $150,000 just to do a reasonably simple upgrade with all the stuff already there, nobody would ever fix anything in their home. No, and it doesn't cost that. So why, is it, why are we as a government agreeing to pay those, those uh, prices? And, you know, a lot of people will point their finger at, and the study that you were referencing does to a degree point the finger at, at uh, unionized workers. That's not the problem. The problem is these, first of all, we're, we're talking about subcontractors and private, private companies coming in to build this. So there's something else. I think we are simply, as staff, are simply saying it's 500000 that's what we need. Everybody rubber stamps it, and the project gets built. And then there's a cost overrun, and, well, who's going to pay for it? I mean, we are running, we are constantly talking about a shortfall when it comes to addressing our infrastructure debt. Well, and, if we and don't it's... start managing our money properly, we will never. We have a beautiful, beautiful water uh, walkway along our waterfront that we can't open because we don't have the money for it. But if we would be a little bit more conscientious of how we're spending our dollars, we would have had the funding. Well, I said this, Donna, of, of, of just before we came on, and part of it I really believe, I absolutely believe this, is because it's not the politicians and the staff's money themselves, they don't fight the same way they would if it was their house. If a contractor showed up and said, it's going to cost you $80,000 to fix your bathroom, and that was at your house. Well, you would argue with that contract. Say, explain to me why it's $80,000. You would not just say, okay, let's, let's do it then. There would have to be something that would explain to you why it's costing that much money. And then if they said, well, the toilet costs 300 and the sink costs 500 and you get up to $2,000 in parts, you're okay, and where's the other $78,000? Like, th- it doesn't seem that there is an urgency because it's not the politicians and the staff people's money. But the very first thing that I looked at when I was elected was the cost of, in my ward, is um, a, a really well-run uh, seniors building, public housing seniors building. It's, it's Mohawk Gardens. And they are desperately short of parking. They have no visitors parking, and they actually need even more parking spots for residents. So, again, prior to my arrival, um, the council had agreed, or, or the councillor had agreed to uh, allocate some funds to put in 12 additional parking spots and change the entrance. At $115,000 in studies, I said, stop it. They came back at that point with an estimate to do the project at $1.2 million. I couldn't believe it. So I asked council to allow me to bring in the auditor. I'm waiting on the report. It should be coming on my desk this week. I want to know why did anybody, who spent 115, who authorized $115,000 $115,000 to be spent on consultants and studies to, to, in, in, to enlarge uh, an existing parking lot at a senior's housing complex. And how did they arrive at $1.2 million? 
It's insane. You said a moment ago, and and I understand what you're saying. You said this isn't all the union's fault, and I'm not going to dump on unions in this case. However, one of the things that does come up in the study is closed shop tendering. And basically, for those who don't understand, and I had to really learn this today, closed shop tendering in the city of Hamilton and a few other cities, we have deals in our place. It's with the Carpenters Union that says that any municipal project, any municipal building project that involves carpentry, and that means if you're going to pour concrete, there's wooden fittings and, and things. So every, pretty much every project is going to involve some kind of wood. So every municipal project has to be done by a contractor or a subcontractor that has a deal or a, a, um, a, is a signatory with the Carpenters Union. And because of that, there is very little competition. And they say costs go up 30 40% sometimes. And I'm led to believe that this is something we could remove ourselves from if we wanted to. It would take some steps. You would have to go through some work to get this thing. Wouldn't that be something that we would want to do in the city to unload our, untie ourselves from that thing to open it up to any contractor, Donna? So when there's a municipal project, if someone wants to come in a lot cheaper, we can take that cheaper one. I agree, but you also have to be careful what you wish for. And I will point to the stadium for that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean, I was exactly, I, until I sat down with the Carpenters Union and a number of other unions, and I said, what is it, guys? You're, you're, you know, we're paying these exorbitant uh, amounts of money. And they said, okay. And we went, started going through it. And I thought, okay, well, yeah, I see what you're saying. All right, they're skilled. You're right. This is right. And then we went through what happened at the stadium. I thought, okay, you got me there. Um, you don't want unskilled uh, people building certain projects. I do believe sometimes there are projects that shouldn't require somebody being paid $40, $50 an hour. Having said that, I do think that you have to look at each project individually at, uh, um, because you don't want to fall into the trap that they fell into with the stadium. I mean, that thing is, we're going to be stuck in a lawsuit, and it's still not complete. Still not complete. How is that possible? So what is the answer then? If, we, if we're okay with, these, with this closed shop tendering, which is going to probably lead to more costs, yeah, and we see... Let me, let me just talk about the, um, if I may. Please. Uh, it has nothing to do with the cost of the washroom. It has nothing to do with the cost of my uh, um, splash pad. So let me go back to my first question then. Why does this happen? Because we're not pushing back. We need to, as you said, start treating this as if it is my, it's your dollar. If it was your dollar, you wouldn't be so um, quick to sign off on, on these projects. And why aren't we pushing back then? Well, I'm pushing back. Well, and that's why well, I have and, you and on, but why are... This week, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sit back on the, these, these specific two items. I sound like a broken record, but to me, they really are indicative of a culture that has to stop if we are going to address a deficit within the city, our infrastructure deficit. We have, um, Rymel Road is a very, and it's becoming increasingly uh, busier, uh, road that runs through my ward. It has been approached in such a piecemeal fashion. We have sidewalks here and no sidewalks here, and we've got bike lanes and no bike lanes, and, and it's ridiculous. And we, you know, we have, it, that, that has happened because we haven't had the money to spend on it. But if we watched our dollars, our cents on every project, we'd have money to do things that people really want done. But we're not. We have to be more careful. And I really want to start with these two particular items because I think that we could show, and perhaps maybe I am wrong, maybe it does cost $600,010 to build a washroom, 
But I think if we really push back, we can do it a lot cheaper than that. I go back to my point. We've got to go. But I, I go back to my point, and that is I don't think that there is a taxpayer in this city or this province that if city council or the province was to push back on people and say, no, it, it isn't $600,000, we are willing to pay $200,000. Yeah, exactly. I don't put think it on there is a... It and then put it out to tender. I don't think there's a taxpayer alive who would say, you know what? No, I would prefer that we pay more because we get better bang from our buck. Yeah. This would be such a hugely popular position to take that council, and you know this, you live this all the time, council gets dumped on sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly, but there is nobody that would be upset with council, except maybe a few people who are in the working world who aren't any longer able to benefit from the big contracts. Nobody would be upset with you guys for doing this. No, I think you're right. And I think people are really, really frustrated that they don't see value for dollar. And that is the point. And sometimes, you know, we live in a bubble at City Hall. We really do. And we do need to be reminded that at the end of the day, people are tapped out. And that is true. You know, um, we talk about, well, everybody's willing to give a little bit more. So, no, there's not much more to give between the cost of, you know, hydro and taxes. And people are tapped out. They want to make sure that the people that they put in power are respecting their dollars and they're getting value for dollar. Let me ask you one more thing. I just got an email from Frank, and it's a good question I want to pass along. Um, If we have this closed shop tendering so that it has to be something that is a signatory to the Carpenters Union, let's say that bathroom is put out there for a job. Do we get multiple bids or is it only the one the Carpenters Union would tell us is the one that is okay to use? How does that work? I believe it. anybody that does um, work has to be uh, has to use members within the carpenters union so they are employees a private but would uh, we get multiple bids as then? long as they're using uh, unionized workers that are signatories to the carpenters union they can put a bid on the project so we would generally get more than one bid it's not just going through the carpenters union and they say no, no, this no, no, is no. who you're taking no no but they have to be signatory so in other words anybody that's doing work um, has to uh, in the in that particular realm of work. So anything that requires framing, etc., has to be um, uh, a member of the Carpenters Union. Councillor Donna Skelly, I wish you good luck <laughs> taking this up with council because again, you know what? I, I'm going to repeat myself, but I I can't see that there would be a single person who would come up back to you and say, you know, I'm really ticked at you guys for trying to save us money. Well, I hope you're right, and I hope council is listening, because I'm going to be raising this in a couple of weeks, and I'd love to come back on the show to tell you the outcome of that particular motion, whether it gets it flies or not. And all I want is 100% accountability for, every, for how we're spending, how we're paying for these projects. What are we actually spending our money on? Accountability for every dime that we're spending, and we'll see if the motion flies. I will love to have you back when hey. that motion comes forward. Donna Skelly, thanks for doing this. All right. Uh, am I wrong? Am I, I mean... Anybody out there, am I wrong? Is there anybody out there who, if city council were to say, you know what, we have been throwing money away on projects without really pushing for better deals, without really cracking down, without demanding accountability from the companies, from the contractors. The contractor comes back and says, this is $500,000. And we say, why? If we haven't been doing that, is there anybody out there that would be critical of city council or of staff, because staff is involved in this too, if they were to become much more hard-nosed on this stuff and say, no, 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 no. We are not paying five, $600,000 for a bathroom. 
We are not going to pay $550,000 for a splash pad when the plumbing and electricity is already in place. Is there anybody out there that would look at a city council that suddenly became vigilant about our money and think anything but good things about them? See, this is what I just... This is the part of it, and, and it's provincial too, by the way. I don't want to just be on city, although city council is, is where we're talking about right now because this poll specifically is dealing a lot with city councils. We are coming up to an election. Do you not think, every city councilor listening, do you not think that if you become the councilor or councilors who say, you know what, this has been going on, but we are going to fix this. We are now going to hold every contractor accountable. And if they can establish why it costs what it costs and in a way that we look and we say, yes, that's, that makes a lot of sense. That's fine. But if you're the counselor who's going to say, we are going to fix this, this is a problem that's been going on forever. And we are going to be much more vigilant about how we spend tax dollars. That's a winning election campaign situation that again, unless I'm really really missing the point here. And unless all of you out there listening, taxpayers are saying, you know what's wrong with Hamilton? I don't spend enough taxes. I don't get hit up for enough taxes. I need to pay more taxes. I've never heard anyone say that. And if council, all members of council and staff would come forward and say, you know what? We really, by looking at this, by contemplating this, think that probably a quarter to a third, let's even just cut it by a quarter, a quarter of the costs of projects that we do in the city, we believe we could negotiate down. If we could save a quarter of the costs, you don't think that council would be applauded? Even if council meetings started to get more boring because they had to talk about what was going on. And and even if they dragged out meetings because now they have to be talking, even if it means more negotiating, here's the other option. We don't have to build all these things, right? All these contractors, all these contractors that are making money, and I'm not against contractors. I have friends who are contractors. I want contractors to make a good living, but not at our expense. If contractors come in with ridiculous prices for things, there's an alternative. You say, mm, we've decided not to build that. So rather than making some profit by putting forward a bid at a reasonable amount, we're not going to build it at all. And you get no profit at no amount. That's how you do this. I know some things have to be fixed. I know there's things that have to be repaired. We can't get around that. But any kind of new project, I'm sorry, if this is more than we think is reasonable, if we think the contractors are taking advantage, if we think that this is more money than needs to be spent on this, well, we're just not going to do it and you don't make any money on this stuff. That's how you resolve this. You don't just say, well, then go ahead. You would not do that at your own house. I've got to wrap up here. But if you had, uh, if you decided you were going to redo your kitchen, And you went and looked around and you priced all the appliances and you priced the, let's say you were getting a, a, not marble, you know, the, the countertop and all the stuff and you priced everything and you had a pretty good idea what everything was going to cost. And your kitchen was going to be $60,000. That's a good kitchen. But let's say you came up with 60,000, including labor. And the guy comes to your house and says, yeah, the cheapest we can do this for is 250. 
you're not going to just simply say, oh, well, if that's what it costs, go ahead. You're going to say, I'm sorry, we have $60,000 to spend. If you can't do it, no business for you. And chances are they will come down. It just, it drives me nuts. And this poll shows that it drives a lot of people nuts. It drives a lot of people nuts. And so it should. I would hate to think that it doesn't drive people nuts. We all pay a lot of taxes. We deserve to have council, staff, provincial politicians, federal politicians fighting for us, not fighting against us. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.